Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Dumbass, I'm sitting here for 10 minutes. I could have done all of this already. Hi. Hi, friend. How are you? Oh, I I don't know. Like, I I feel today, like, just, um, I'm not feeling it. Like, today's, like, like, shit keeps going wrong this morning. Like, the dog woke up too early. Like, what are you doing up at 3.15? Nobody likes that. Like, go back to bed. So... And then I just, you know, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of people online lately talking about, and one of them was a scientist talking about how mercury in retrograde is not a thing. It's like not a real thing and people blame it, but okay, fine. That's fine. But also we like need something to blame stuff on. So (laughs) I feel like blaming mercury, a planet in retrograde is the least harmful thing we could do absolutely like fuck the planet like i'm gonna blame mercury and retrograde so anyway i just really feel like if there is such a thing as mercury and retrograde i was feeling it this morning just like um like shit is not going like my husband and i were not communicating right this morning and like I, i just over stupid stuff about him getting a burrito a breakfast burrito it like it doesn't matter the point is like we're i'm not it's one of those days where I was like, okay, I got to make sure, like, before I came and talked to you, I was like, let me blow this candle out in the other room because it's one of those mornings where, like, yeah, I could right. see I, I'm not going to set myself up for more for more failure. So, um, so that's how I feel. I feel, like, a little bit tired and, um, and PMS-y, but I'm okay. I'm here. That's good. That is a gift of being older that when you can recognize – you just done it enough to be like, hmm, when I start doing this, then it doesn't go too great for me. So I better do this other thing. Right. It goes really yeah. badly if I, um, right. If I blame people instead of Mercury and retrograde and if I don't, don't make things easier on myself. So like today I have, um, uh, remind me, I, I, I just have to, um, get off our call at nine at, at eight fifty five if that's okay. Can we end okay, our sure. yeah. Not yeah. this one, but the next one. Anyway, I have okay. a thought a thought ideation group. I told you how I do do I did I tell you how I do these thought ideation groups? No, I've never heard of this whatsoever. Well, okay. So there's a company that hires creative thinkers to sort of join these um uh, like those, you know how you get t- tagged to do those marketing things and you get paid like, you know, like a focus mm. group, right? Oh, uh-huh. So we're like uh, moles on the inside of the focus group that are hired to uh, basically make the conversation more lively. Um, uh, yeah. Wow. So, so. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Who, who's we? So it's me and a bunch of like, so, okay, it, it's a, it's a company in Chicago. And my friend was like, you know, the money's not, it's not steady, but it's good money when you do it. Would you be interested in doing this thing called thought ideation? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. So it was a company um, that, that they put together groups of creatives and then charge companies a lot of money um, to bring us in and we make some of the money to um, 
get their market research going on a certain product or item. And so a lot of times when you have those focus groups, like nobody talks, there's no, you know, average Joe and Betty Schmo are there for the money. Of course, they're not there. You know, their jam is not thinking like that's not anyway. So they hire us to sort of go in and be the, and sometimes it's only, um, create like ideators or whatever we're called. And sometimes we're mixed with the general consumer. And I don't know what that one is, to, what what's happening today, but you're, you can't be like, oh, I'm special. You know what I mean? So you have to sort of blend in. So you can't I be see. like performity, performity, uh, performative, but you also have to like sort of be engaging. It's interesting work. It's also, um, right. I, as I get older, I'm like, oh, I want to be the people running the, the group. Like whenever I'm in these groups, I look at the marketing because it's the marketing department of whatever product. And I'm like, this, this is a cool job. I have missed my calling as one of these market research, like people that are probably making more than I'm making, but, um, yet I haven't done that. So, so that's what I'm doing at nine, 9 9am on zoom. Now they're all on zoom for, you know, a couple hours, you make a couple hundred bucks. Okay. What's the product or today it's some kind of fitness situation talking about fitness, um, equipment so the 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 questions for the panel is like would you be likely to use this or like how could you make this product better it's usually like how could this be better like what speaks to you they're really into it's fascinating because they're really into like story too like what kind of story does this this product uh tell or like it's interesting they're really looking at like ways to make things better are things practical and um, user-friendly and um, right. And like what feelings do these evoke this candle evoke or whatever the thing is. And, and then um, there's also like these exercises you do sometimes that are just seemingly unrelated, um, but somehow tie back into products, whatever. So, so you're just behaving as another person on the panel. You're just, you're answering the same questions as everybody else, but you're, your like, your liveliness is meant to be infectious. Got it. Exactly. Okay, and, well, that's a perfect job for you. My well, God. thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I, you know, I like doing it. And also it's really, um, it's, yeah, you can't make a living at it, but you could, I asked, you know, like, oh, could I join the actual organization? And they, they're like, this is like a one, two man operation. We don't have money for, you know, okay. whatever. But so anyway, that's what I'm doing at nine. Um, and, um, so anyway, that's what I've got. I just got like back to back stuff, which is great. And it's also like we have a dog and Miles started this new job and we're in a fucking, fucking one bedroom apartment. It, 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 yeah, tough. Oh, mama. It, 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 I never, I never, uh, so we've been living in a one bedroom off and on for, you know, mostly for years and it hasn't been a problem because none of us had real jobs. So like, or like permanent jobs. And, and yeah. when Miles did contract work, they don't give a fuck where you do it, how you do it, who's in your room. If you're in your bed, they treat you like, like, you know, commodity and you do your thing and you're done. But now there's like a real situation. So I'm like, Oh my God. So it's the first time in our marriage that I'm like, Oh, we need more space. And I, I see how that happens. Like it's the same Mm -hmm. as your life changes. It's just happening later for us where you're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, our life is expanding. We actually need a container. That's going to sort of stretch instead of yeah. Like make us insane. So um yeah. that's so that's all that's all feeding into my retrogradiness. 
I wonder how that idea about Mercury and retrograde first ever even came to be a thing. Like, I, I guess it has I, something to I, do I with astrology. It's Gwyneth Paltrow. You know yeah, probably. Paltrow <laughs> probably. Well, as for me, yeah. I'm I'm ready. Today I woke up saying I'm I am opening, dear universe. I'm I'm penning a letter to the universe. I am open to an exciting and positive surprise today. I haven't had an exciting and positive surprise <laughs> since. Hmm. I can't I can't remember the last time I had an exciting okay. and positive surprise. Okay. So yeah, bring it on. Merc if it's Mercury, fine. You can bring it on Mercury, Saturn, yeah. Pluto, Venus. I, Venus. I'll, tell, I'll take any I'll take any planet. Uranus. As long as it's <laughs> Uranus, as long as it's a gift. As long as it's a gift. Gina got this might be a gift. I was gonna say Uranus is it could be a gift, you know. Um I, I love that situation. I love yeah. that. I just it's like a lot of samesies over here. Samesies breakfast, lunch, and dinner, samesies people at the breakfast, lunch, and dinner table, samesies conversations about what we have to do today, samesies chores, samesies clothes I'm folding, samesies emails right. I'm responding to. So yeah, I mean, to be honest, I could probably engender some more novelty if I just did something different, <laughs> you know, like it probably right. would only take me doing something different to have a different or novel sort of experience. But um, one of the thing, one of the characteristics about being in like this groundhog day of it all is that you've sort of are uninclined to do something different because it's right. just like it, you know, it perpetuates itself, whatever. So, so maybe that's my, maybe that's my task for the day is to try to I mean, engender it, some change. It's an interesting concept because if you look at television, like that's where, people get into a lot of weird shit is when they're in the same season. I'm just thinking of like um, desperate housewives and those. So like, and a lot of shows uh, breaking bad, like it, it, it's all about the same humdrum that we all get into. And then either nature, you know, throws us a either benevolent or not so benevolent or a surprise or we create a situation so that we're not in the same disease anymore which is why you know people have do all kinds of stuff it's interesting as humans we need we need variety i think some you know to mix it up a little bit you know absolutely did i ever tell you the story about um when we first moved to this town the little town newspaper used to have this, what I thought was the best part of the whole newspaper. They've since gotten rid of it um, where they'd say um, they pick a day in history of what they were running in the newspaper. Cause the newspaper had been around for whatever it was like hundred years. And they'd say, you know, on this day in history and it was, but it was always something like really local to our town, which was kind of cute. I think it was like the first or second week we lived here I was pregnant with my daughter. We were driving to the city every single day because the boys were not, it, it was right at the end of their school year. So I wanted them to finish their school year in the city. So we, I had to get up at like 4.30 
in the morning in order to like get everything ready to get them to school. And they would like sleep in the car on the way there. It was totally crazy. But so I was feeling very uh, trapped at that time. And the thing in the newspaper was a story about a woman who had gone missing. She was last seen. She had gone next door to her friends to play cards. And that's where her son, I guess, when he came home, that's where he usually expected her to be. This time when he came home, there was ketchup all over the floor and the door was open and the woman was never seen again. So the idea was she had pretended to, that there was blood. She, I don't know why she thought that that would be a convincing thing, I guess. And also why she didn't think it would be traumatizing for her child, but, um, and she, and somebody had reported seeing her walking down some, road like she just walked away from her life and I went my reaction to reading that was this mixture of like fear and and glee and shame that I was have that that was a gleeful thought to me it it made such an indelible impression but there are so many times in my life as a mom where I'm like I could just see myself. I would never do it, obviously. And she was probably very mentally ill. But still, just the the fantasy of opening the door and walking away and just being like, "I, I, this is no longer my responsibility. It's just like, it still gives me a little thrill sometimes. I can, I don't have, obviously, you know, I don't have children, but I can totally relate. So I have this fantasy when things get too much, I have this very specific weird fantasy and it brings me such joy. And I tell Miles about it. So I pack up the car. I mean, I have no belong. I mean, what am I packing? I don't know. I pack up my Volvo, my little Volvo, Volvo. I pack it up. I take all my money that my mom left me. I buy a fair, a small goat farm in Nashville. This is so crazy. And I go to Nashville and I just live on this goat farm and I just like the neighbors come and visit me and I don't know anybody and I start over and I have this new life in, in this small goat farm in Nashville. And it just feels like, oh my God, it just feels like freedom. It started yeah. because it started because Jack White lived in Nashville and I was having all these recurring dreams uh, about Jack White. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I could be there. And then I was like, okay, forget him. Like, who cares? I I just want um, this small yet interesting life in Nashville where I don't work. I don't know what I would do with the goats, but I, you know, that's the thing about fantasies. You never get yeah, all the way no, there. You don't, ha- you don't have to, you don't have to work out all the logistics. No, but it just seems, it just seems like such a good time. <laughs> it's, it seems like a relief. Well, do you think this is why back in the day men used to so frequently like have a second family just three blocks away? And maybe it was, maybe it was originally started because like 
maybe this family will be better. Yes. You know, that's right? why people do everything. Like maybe, I mean, maybe this job will be better. Maybe this town will be better. Maybe, you know, and I, I mean, because I'm uh, who I am, I, I think like serial killers have the same thing. We're like, this kill will be the one that uh, scratches the itch and I will no longer need to do this. Same with drug addicts. Maybe this <sighs> will be better. It never works, but the fantasy is so seductive. It's like, God, that's really interesting to think about a serial killer as also having just a mundane wish to like get relief. Everyone is just trying to get relief. And I think that I think the depression would really set in. Like how many families can you have? How many victims? You know, then it becomes, oh, it's 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 um it's really it's a really seductive <laughs> trap. Speaking about serial killers, I want to know what your thoughts are about the potential revelation of who the real zodiac killer is look so i i have this thing with the zodiac where i'm just like now permanently annoyed at the whole investing i'm like okay me too what is it i don't I, get it I, I, um i feel like right it is the longest running terrible investigation that ever was i mean oh that could just really bungled like but continues it never uh it just seems really really poorly worked all the time and also i've lost my thrill i've lost the thrill so now i just saw the thing and i didn't really what are they saying who's who are they saying did it now they're saying it's this guy named gary post i think it's p-o-s-t-e i think that's the name and i don't know if it's true or not but the funniest thing was going around um on twitter that this guy who was this Gary Post's best, he died in 2018. Um, this guy was his best friend, a significantly younger guy, and that he would have all these pictures of the two of them on Facebook. And he'd be like, you know, like, you know, fishing with Gary Zodiac question mark, like that he Shut. on several occasions had been like, never said, I think that's a Zodiac killer, but always be like Zodiac question mark. Hey, I don't know if it's true, but if it is, Gary's I'm sorry friend. for the victims, whatever, but that's hilarious. I actually don't really know anything about this. I don't know who he killed or where he, it was I mean, or when story, it was. The story is a, is a creepy one. It's a guy in the 50s, right, who, uh, late 50s, I believe, early 60s, something like that, who definitely um, targeted couples making out right and he had this burlap sack mm. on his head and then he so he killed all these these couples on lover's lane and then oh. he started sending letters to the and it's this long drawn out thing and i just yeah i gotta say like i just became weary of the whole zodiac thing and yeah. and it's been so many different people and there's been like 43 movies i'm just like oh it's i don't know why it's just look yeah. if i was a family member you bet your ass i'd be interested obviously but i just feel like it's now, a mess it's a mess hey let me run this by you no okay, okay. so here's what i want to run by you um as a therapist you were probably in this position but i wonder if you've been in this position in other ways when you have to hold the hope for somebody when you don't really have it yourself 
you're like, I'm having this conversation with one of my kids who is basically having the exact same problem that I have, which is he doesn't have any friends because he doesn't relate to anybody in our town. And I'm really trying so hard to figure out the way in which this problem as it relates to me. I'm not trying, I mean, I am trying to figure out related to him, but I'm not going to talk about that on the, on the podcast. Sure. Um, I'm trying really hard to figure out the way in which I, I know it has something to do with my self-centered fear, this inability to relate to other people. Um, but I haven't worked it out yet. And so I'm trying to help him and I'm basically giving platitudes that I don't even really believe in because I don't know what else to say. Mm. I feel it's, I feel it's, um, I feel I cannot say, yeah, you're right. Everybody here sucks and nobody's interesting and you'll probably never have any friends until you move away, which is the feeling that I actually have. And so what I could always go back to as a therapist is like, okay, so, so, so you don't have any friends. So, so then what, what do you, so then how can you find joy in your life? Or so then how can you make meaning out of whatever, what you're doing? And, um, and actually one of the things I was telling him was to try to find a way to be of service because that's usually a way to get, you, you know, a person outside of themselves. This concept though is sort of advanced I think in a way for somebody his age but are do you know what I'm talking about when you're trying to hold the hope for somebody and how do you manage it and how do you deal with it well I'm trying to think of like uh I definitely know this feeling and I also I'm thinking back to I remember trying to um counsel people or therapize with people when really stuff hard stuff was happening in my own life it sort of um right it, it, it i know that we don't want to say like listen i'm having the same problem too to your what i'm understanding is you don't want to say that but i think you kind of have to say to him or i have to say to whoever like I got to be honest and transparent here. Like I'm actually working with similar things in my life and you don't have to get into them and stuff because I think part of the problem, right, is feeling so isolated and maybe you guys can turn it. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy, but like maybe you guys could turn it into a project together to try to investigate Hmm. this town and see Hmm. what things you could do together, whether it's like, I don't know what kind of volunteer stuff, but like maybe you could use it as a, a bonding experience rather than hmm. a, I, because that's a really is, good idea. Well, we talk about this on the, on the podcast where it's like, the truth is the truth. Like you feel like in this town, you Gina have trouble relating to people. And so that's just the truth. It doesn't mean anyone's doing anything wrong, either you or them. It's just the truth, right? It's same thing with your kiddo. So I think it's like, make it a way, make, try to make it a way where you guys can team together. So like what I would say to my client or something, it was like, listen, let's talk about ways in which we can work with grief um, for you. And uh, maybe I'll pick up some, because I'm a human, maybe I'll pick up some tips on the way, but like what has worked in the past or like, so I think you have to join rather than separate further. That's right. I just don't know any other way. 
Yeah. Right? Because or else then you've got two people isolated in their own mess. Mm -hmm. And otherwise it's just me pretending like. You don't. You, and pretending yeah. leads to depression and anxiety for everybody. Yeah, like it just no does. So when I pretended with clients that everything was fine. Like, look, I'm not telling them all my problems. I still have boundaries. I hope I had boundaries. But I definitely did not pretend that like I was. Uh, everything was normal. I would be like, yeah, I'm going through a really hard time. My mom is sick, but that doesn't mean mm -hmm. I'm not still your therapist and let's go forward. So it's like, yeah, you're the mom, but you also are human. And I think that's one of the things that probably, you know, makes parents good parents is like being able to, it's a fine line, but being able to be like transparent and say like, man, you're not alone in this problem. I have this too. How can we make it better together? My parents never did that, by the way. So I always felt isolated and I felt like they felt isolated. So you've got two isolated people in the same roof, which makes for a real shit do you, show. Do you think they, and my parents never did that either. Do you think they never did it because nobody ever did it for them? And they, and a lot of the times when you were coming to them or you had a problem, your problem mirrored something in their lives and they felt scared by that. So they tried to tell you the same platitude that their parents tried to tell them that didn't work for them either. Right. right. Oh my God. Why would we do this? Cause we don't know any better. Daisy chain of like, let's pretend that something we all know doesn't work works. It's like, it's like, because of like you said, fear, it's just fear. It's fear of having to look at, Oh my God, I move like for my parents. It was like, Oh my God, the fear of, let me look at how I entered this marriage and what am I doing in this marriage? And what am I doing in my career? Whatever it is, those are really hard things to look at and really could lead to some, maybe having to make changes. And my mom, I can tell you right now, did not want to deal with that. And neither did my dad. Like it's a lot of work. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and on top of, you know, at that time, both having full-time jobs and two children. So like, mm -hmm. no shit. Yeah. And honestly, that's also usually always the answer when something is painful. Uh, not always, but it's often the answer that you just have to go deeper into the pain of it so you can get to the other side. Like so I've had torturous. that experience in my, you know, primary relationships, like something feels like it's on the brink of ending it's or, or my perception because of my history is if it's this bad, the only thing that is possible as an outcome is that this relationship will end it and and i've ended many relationships that way but then i've had a couple and i do mean like a couple of experiences where things were so bad and i was convinced and doing the whole morning and everything like being in the real grief of this thing has ended before it's even ended because i assume that that's the only answer and then fortunately, you know, the other person not just making the decision to end things like I would, but saying, no, 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 let's just have this pain and keep doing it and, right. and, see, and see what's on the other side. That was never modeled for me. So it, it always felt like death, like, okay, right. well, so you, and, and, and maybe my son is going through this too. Like you just, as you were talking about you just people please and people please and you try to figure out the thing that's going to make that the, that you think the other person wants until you literally can't take it anymore and then you just explode leave ketchup on the floor and walk down walk down the the road never to be heard from again like i feel so many of us myself included at certain times 
um, have have truly believed there is no hope on the other side. If something is really bad, then there then it's only got one final common pathway, which is death, death end, end, termination, over. And so many of these things would be better for us if we would say, but what if it wasn't? What if it wasn't right. death? What so, if we just kept going deeper into the pain of it? Right. And so I, I, I always think of, I always think of like, right, of my two things of my mentor, Dr. Altman, who would say like, but it could have worked, but like, it, it, it's possible. Like, what if it does work? Like, what if this med works or what, like, it's possible. And I'd be like, really? This is crazy, but okay. You seem to think it, I don't believe it, but I believe that you believe it because you're real insistent and we have a good track record. So I always remember that. And I always think of this article I read about starting off real happy on this Tuesday, but this article (laughs) I read about people who jumped off the golden gate bridge, the ones who survived every single one, not, not 90%. 100 percent of people who jumped and lived the first thought out of their mind and they continued to hold on to it and after they survived was i've made a horrible mistake things weren't as bad as all this Mm -hmm. they never said this was a great so it just reminds me that like it, 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 um, and I was like, what? So everyone they interviewed now, they didn't have not interviewed every, but I was like shocked that their research showed that, that, that I shouldn't have done this. I've made a horrible mistake is the number one thought that happens upon that jump that people mm-hmm. who lived. So I'm like, okay, 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 okay. If that is true, if I'm going to hold that to be true and these people have lived this shit obviously and uh, survived and speaking of survival right and then i'm gonna see what's on the other side i can see whether it's a small pain or a large pain like it's uncomfortable it feels intolerable but is it really intolerable and that's something that you probably you know tolerate right is is it really intolerable or am i just telling myself that because i've never actually tested the hypothesis like because actually what is intolerable right i mean like right we we're very adaptable as humans we can learn to tolerate a lot of things so it's it's uncomfortable and it feels horrible and feels uh, terrible and painful but i'm not sure i'm not sure not seeing it through actually feels better or, right. or doing no, something totally else. Right. I, I just don't you're have totally the data right. that that is true. Although when you, someone's going through it, they, it's like, especially, you know, like I was thinking about clients that have borderline personality disorder that who's the tolerance for, for uncomfortable feelings is excruciating and small and has to be grown right to, to yes. show like you can do it. You have resilience, but you, ha- they never learn that. So it's like learning and it's so painful to grow and learn. It is so yes. fucking painful. Yeah. It literally feels like Ugh. trying to go grow a new skin and, you know, and shed out of your old one, which, you know, when you just say it like that, it sounds like it would be something like very pleasant, but really, you know, it, it feels like, you know, it feels like you're going to explode or it feels oh, like you're going to spontaneous. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's violent. violent. If right. you watch a butterfly transition or a, a caterpillar transitioning to butterfly, it, it's violent and gross mm-hmm. and dark and disgusting. And yeah, you, it looks, and then it's beautiful and yeah. it looks like they're going to die, mm-hmm. but they don't. 
So yeah. I guess we got to keep going here. Got to keep going. <laughs> keep going. Keep, keep going. Keep going. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Stephen Davis. Stephen Davis went to the theater school at DePaul University with us, and then he went on to do so many things. He's an actor, a stage combat pro, he's been a makeup artist, and now he's an educator. He's a lovely storyteller and a kind human, so please enjoy our conversation with Stephen Davis. that I was oh, part of that. Stephen Davis, congratulations. You survived theater school. I did. I did. And I work at one now. So, you know, and hey. you work at one now. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. you're on, you've been on both sides of the equation. Mm-hmm. Now you're in New Jersey. Are you from New Jersey? No, I'm actually, I was born in Santa Barbara, California, where Boz sends people to leave her house when they can't sleep on the couch anymore. <laughs> um, so, so I was born in Santa Barbara. My dad was a professor at Ohio at uh, Santa UCSB. And then he got uh, a full-time tenured position at Ohio State University. And so when I was living in Columbus, Ohio, we either went to Cedar Point, right, Gina? Cedar yes, Point or yes. Kings Island for for our trips, those who either went to Sandusky. How old were you? When, How old were you when you moved from Santa Barbara? I was four. My, my parents, okay. uh, so I was four when we moved from Santa Barbara to Columbus. Uh, I'm a Buckeye. I, I, I've always been a Buckeye, so I, I grew up with my dad being a professor there, uh, and uh, uh, it's it's a good place to grow up, but I wouldn't want to live there. Is that yeah. why you went into higher education, probably because of your dad? Well, the crazy thing is my dad always says, like, having <laughs> having understood what higher education is like from my experience, why? would you want to do that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so but right. it's, it's, um, I, I, I think that, um, at an early age, uh, I discovered that I, because I'm, I'm dyslexic, I have a different way of learning. I don't learn A to B. I learned five different ways of going from A to B. And because of that, um, and having some awful experiences with teachers growing up, uh, that, uh, you know, Mrs. Grummer telling me in fourth grade that I was going to amount to nothing, you know, things like that, that the power that you've expressed in this podcast about the power of teachers and the ways in which, what they say has lasting impressions on us. Um, what I discovered in, uh, my time at the theater school and my time after the theater school, I really enjoyed helping other people. Uh, and to learn, I was a makeup assistant under Nan Zabriskie. Um, you guys did the the makeup work uh, yeah. for Into the Woods. I worked with that. I helped supply. Oh my gosh, all my Ben Nye makeup up there. That I know. I was yeah. like, wait, is that Ben Nye? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I and love it. and here's a great example. Nan Zabriskie. I was a makeup assistant under her. I did that for two years. That was my work study job. And, uh, you know, as I found out through these podcasts, my job was to provide pancake makeup to first year students to paint muscles on Leonard Roberts body that did not need any pancake makeup. (laughs) So so, you're tying it all together. You you know, what's so amazing is like, is that is that your way of storytelling 
you have a great memory and also that you're you do you have a way of tying everything together so basically what this comes down to is you're the reason that leonard is a star is what you're saying no leonard (laughs) leonard is a star because leonard is a star Leonard yeah, is you are right. Leonard. Leonard can make talk about storytelling. He can make a trip to Quick Check or Seven Eleven, depending on where you live, sound like an event that everyone needs to be a part of. I mean, the man is one of the best storytellers I've ever seen, heard, wow. been around. I love that man, and he is part of the reason I survived the theater school. He, really? oh yeah, really? he, Amy Farrell, Kevin Fox, Jonna Adams, like these are the people, uh, Siler Thomas. Yeah. These are the people that helped me get through what was at times an extremely difficult period in my life. Um, to, to that point, uh, and in, in terms of what you've had discussions with the students, uh, the alums, I should say, of and student Justin Ross, amazing. I was blown away by his interview. I'm like, oh my gosh, this kid has it together. Like yes. all the things that he was doing. I'm like, oh my gosh. The future yeah, looks bright. Holy yeah. cow. But, um, you know, my, my parents divorced when I was six. My dad started acting in plays. Uh, I wanted to be a part of that. I got into a show when I was nine. I was I played Little Charlie in a production of uh, Flowers for Algernon. Oh, I love yeah. that play, yeah. actually. Oh, That's beautiful. a beautiful play. Ed Grasick, who wrote Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. He wrote the play. I mean, he directed the play. He wrote come back to the five on Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. And it was my first instance with stage combat because in that show, the mother of little Charlie comes in and I'm touching my sister and she smacks uh, the, the, the kid. And Ed Grasick told the actress, just do it. And so I'm sitting oh there God. leaning over the crib and the actress came in and what? And I'm nine years old and I'm like ears ringing, jaw hurts and everything. And I'm like, and they're like, do it again. And I'm like, "Uh, okay. And I get smacked again. And already my first instance in theater, I'm discovering the importance of learning how to do something for the stage versus reality. So, you know, that had a, a major impact in my studying of stage combat and, and I'm a fight choreographer now and doing a lot of different things. So it was a, a major impact to me. Um, but I did. Which I got we've into... never we've never really talked that much about stage combat on here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my cr- kind of lasting impression is like, I feel we all maybe didn't take it quite seriously enough mm-hmm. when we were doing it. But actually, it turns out to have been one of the most important parts of what we did, mm-hmm. just in terms of like awareness and right. and and also something that ne- not necessarily people that age realize is the awareness of your impact on the other person when you're on stage, whether you're mm-hmm. doing a fight scene or not. Just right. the the impact of your body and your energy in space, and that has always been yeah. a gift of yours, I think. Yeah is being very aware of your, your body. Very aware. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think it's like really for, for me in the stage combat, like I actually got to know my classmates on a deeper Mm -hmm. level than I ever had before. And a trust Mm -hmm. because I was like, wait a second, you're going to do what we're going to do. Second year, first intro, uh, you know, I had Rick first year and then I had uh, David Afkali second year and I had Don Ilko for my first, um, um, Intro. intro. And it was Hot L Baltimore. 
and we oh. were working on it, Lanford Wilson's play. Um, and, yeah. and of course, which monologue did I do to get into the school? Jen, if I'm going to talk about Lanford Wilson, which play did I do? You did. Um, wait, 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 wait. She's holding it up. <laughs> burn, oh, you did burn this. It's, it's oh, like, everyone yeah, did Yeah, exactly. Burn it's like every single podcast, you're like, is it burn this? Is it burn yeah. this? <laughs> so, um, but anyways, I, I uh, was in Don Elko's intro and it was great to work with him, but I had a slip up. I mispronounced something because reading it from the script and I mispronounced a name and names are always where my dyslexia gets me because I feel very self-conscious and my breath gets held that I'm going to mispronounce someone's name. And he made fun of me. And I went, I'm just, I was like, I lashed out. I was like, I'm dyslexic and, and I'm doing the best that I can. The very next day I'm in the pit eating lunch, working on my lines. And Don comes up and he goes, I'm sorry. I apologize, but here's the thing. You need to do something about this because if you don't do something about this, it's going to hold you back. He said, you need to find a tutor. The next day I found a tutor and I'm glad that I did because the reality is, is it would have held me back and it would have been an issue in the school if it continued to be an issue. And it also pointed to the fact is I should have done that research. I should have spent that time before rehearsal to, to do the work. And I hadn't. My laziness had gotten that. But Laziness I learned... is not a word that occurs to me when I think of you. Why, where are you lazy? Well, it's the thing is, is like the work. We, you know, laziness, we are not taught to be lazy in the theater school. You know, we're taught to work ourselves to the bone. Many of your, uh, many of the people on the podcast have talked about, it. I remember uh, Blake Hackler talking about like the fatigue factor and the, the reality is, is like, we're taught that, but in an area that is an issue for me, which I should address, I got timid and lazy. I'm doing a reading oh, of the yeah. seagull this weekend and, and like Russian names. I'm like, oh, Zarek Naya and Konstantin Gravolovich. And, you know, you're just like, oh, you know, but yeah. it activates something in me. And it, instead of sometimes facing it, I run away from it. And that's. I have the same yeah. thing with my health and doctors. I mean, it's the same. What I am afraid of, I can inadvertently or something side door laziness where I'm like, well, I don't want to deal with my blood pressure. So I'm just going to eat sodium. It's not the way it works. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, but anyway, it's a, it's a specific kind of like self-centered fear laziness. It's like a, it's not like, oh, I'm just going to be lazy. It's like, I'm going to ignore this specific. It's avoidance. Lazy. It's, a, it's yeah, intentional it's, avoidance yeah, of yeah, something. Yeah. That's anyway, a pain point. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's an area that I got lazy and he, he was gracious, but he was very specific. And the one thing mm-hmm. is, is like, I took that note and I'm like, okay, Steven, you can either do something about this or this can become an issue that can hold you back. And so I addressed it head on. Wow. And, uh, and it helped, I'm assuming. Oh my gosh. The weekly sessions that I had with my tutor, you know, helped me immensely um, in, in, in getting more comfortable with text and getting more comfortable and breathing and then, you know, being able to address things ahead of time finding the ways to address it ahead of time so that I could keep moving forward. So, wow. So then uh, what, what describe the distance between when you 
presumably left theater school and were planning to be a famous actor and uh, when you started working at theater schools. Okay. Well, right out of school, um, uh, John Jenkins had gotten ill and he had needed someone to teach movement to music. So Sharon Gopfert and myself co-taught his class for him, um, which was awesome. Uh, And then I was brought in to be, uh, I was brought in to teach the stage combat class as well as, as like an assistant. And those were both amazing experiences. And those jobs actually led to work later on because they were on my resume and they were like, oh, you, you've taught stage combat. And so I ended up teaching stage combat for a summer professional training program and all these different things. So those opportunities became greater opportunities. Um, when I think about the certification and uh, SAFD certification and the makeup assistant, being a makeup assistant led to me working at the Lyric Opera. Um, uh, I was a makeup artist there. I was be- being paid $60 an hour to face paint people there. Um, and I didn't go down into the basement for an audition and feel what Boss felt. But, you know, I, I went in and <laughs> I went in and was... Well, was hired as a makeup artist and I'm doing all this face painting. You know, they, they bring all the extras and they, we just whip them out and they were broad strokes, but it was great so to be cool. making 120 bucks. $60 an hour. That's a lot of money. 120 bucks to do this. And that was great. And then working with Nick Sands, Patricia's husband, who did the fights for uh, dangerous liaisons at Shattered Globe, which Sue Bennett talked about, who was brilliant in that. And I was in uncle Vanya with her. And she was brilliant in that. And then I saw her in House of Blue Leaves on Broadway and was like waving oh. like a theater geek. Hi. Oh, you know, from, she's amazing. She's amazing. And yeah. her, her uh, Bella Hickin impression was absolutely breathtaking. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, um, yes. You know, to do those, to do that stage combat, I actually got hired and was hired as an actor combatant for Romeo and Julieta on the stage at the Lyric with the 70 foot proscenium. And they, they had us fight and everything. And the assistant director came in and he said he wanted to look at us fight. And he's like, you, center stage. So the curtain goes up for 4,500 people. And I'm center stage as one of the Capulets fighting. And I'm just like, holy cow. Wow. So, That's right out of school? That, was, was, that, that? was a couple of years out of school. That was also when I was in No End of but, Blame with Paul Holquist, who I connected with yes. just yesterday. And PJ nice. and Timeline and great and was in uh was in four shows at the same time right at the moment that i stopped acting what hmm okay what? that's interesting yeah um and pa- what the hell yeah, yeah. you could have been friends with me and Bean. yeah <laughs> um i i uh, my makeup assistant position i also uh worked the halloween trade show for ben nye and dana and i from ben nye worked with him for three years at the halloween trade show in march um, and he said, if you want to come out to L.A., I will give you a job. Wow. And I was at a point in my life in Chicago where there were too many demons around every corner. And I just literally, literally like, uh, yeah, DePaul yeah. demons. And then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Like light bulbs going off when you're working on the lighting crew reading. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the Demons around every corner where I basically decided I needed to make a change. But I also, there was a clear moment. I was in a restaurant um, bathroom just down the street from where we were doing No End of Blame for Timeline. And I splashed some water on my face and I looked in the mirror and I said, you're an asshole. And 
if you don't change, you're going to die because of the way I was abusing alcohol and doing different things. I could not sustain what I was doing and it was tearing me up inside. And, you know, you look at someone like Susan Bennett, when, when I saw her work in Les Laisons Dangerous and in Uncle Vanya, she was building and building and building and sustaining and learning from the people around her. And she was building like this breath of work that was just growing and growing and growing. Right out of school, I was cast in Agamemnon by Stephen Burkoff at European Rep, which was where Timeline was before Timeline took over that space. And that show ran for three years. And to come in and out of that show was awesome. Great impact on me. But if I backtrack to school, two days before I graduated high school, uh, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she passed away my senior year. Um, she passed away September 14th in 1994. And the whole time I was in school, I was dealing with a lot of that. My mom never wanted me to be an actor. She never wanted to be to be in theater. She wanted me to be a CPA because I was good in math. She challenged it. She questioned it. A lot of things. She said, "You, when I see you on stage, you're just like your father. That is not a compliment coming from her. So here my mom is sick. Um, I, uh, went with Kevin Fox to a, a concert, a Pink Floyd concert over Memorial Day weekend when I went to go visit her. Um, and she was getting spinal taps and getting chemotherapy directed, injected directly into her spine. And she was struggling and she said, I can't pay for college anymore. You, you, you're going to have to find a way yourself. And money had always been held over my head in that, in my relationship, because when I turned 18, my mom had to turn over the money my dad invested in the house back to my mom. So there was always this sense of you're a paycheck. You are the money that I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose my house because of you. I'm going to lose my, I'm going to lose things because of you, because of this money I owe your father. And growing up with that, that weighed down on me, hence therapy. So, you know, and other reasons for therapy because therapy is amazing and it saved my life. So you, you look at the fact that when I was in college, I had a difficult time processing that. Um, and then I'm in school, junior year, um, <laughs> junior year, I'm in Betsy Hamilton's class and we had these directing projects that we directed people in, in these projects. And, uh, um, I, and I directed a piece and I made the most ridiculous statement in class. I said, I've learned who I want to work with and who I don't want to work with by doing this process. The next day, Betsy sat everybody down and every single one of my classmates handed me, and rightfully so, my ass and ripped me a new one of how arrogant oh. and self-centered I was being. And this was the oh. same time I was in Snow White, Rose Red. And I just kind of, you know, my first main stage show. And, uh, and I was like arrogant. And, but that arrogant was armor. That arrogance was, was this block. Sure. And so I changed my behavior. I changed my, I changed my behavior. I kind of like started to hold my hands up and sit in a corner. And I did that for a while. And one of my classmates finally came up to me and said, thank you for really listening to us because I really appreciate the way you're behaving now by comparison to the way you're behaving before. And I heard that and I was like, 
what the fuck? I'm like, that is not what I wanted to do. I don't want to change everything. I was headed, I had a trajectory of where I was going. Yes, I was arrogant. I got handed my ass, rightfully so. And I appreciate the fact that, uh, I appreciate that honesty. That's what I love. I loved brutal honesty. I still to this day love brutal honesty. I like it when people tell me what they truly think. I don't want anyone to hide behind mm -hmm. something because that doesn't help anyone. So getting handed that by my classmates, it did change my behavior. Fast forward senior year, September 14th, Jim Ostelhoff's class. Um, I'm sitting there and, and everyone's like, you know, if you made all this money, what would you do? And we're going around the class and everybody starts talking about what they would do. And the class is over and I, and I said, I have to go today um, because I don't think I'm going to be here next week. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, I wrote all this stuff. I did this assignment, but it's all bullshit. Because the fact of the matter is, like, if I had money, I'd take care of my mom. I'd take care of my dad. I'd take care of my brother. I'd take care of the people closest to me. I wouldn't have my house in Santa Barbara and my apartment in New York and my other apartment in Chicago. I said, because that's not who I am. But that's what I did for this assignment. And when I hear everybody here, I know it's bullshit. The only thing I want to do is take care of my family. I walked out of that room and Leonard was waiting there and he just put his arms around me and I lost my shit. And it was at that exact moment that my mom died. So it, the reality is the time of her death and the time that that moment occurred was the exact same moment. When I, oh. when I was in undergrad, when, when I was freshman year, I was in church, I was sitting in church and I was, uh, I was praying and all of a sudden I felt this overwhelming feeling hit me. And I immediately went home and I called my mom and I said, mom, you didn't go to chemotherapy, did you? And she said, no, I didn't. And I said, why? And she says, I've already lost my breasts. I don't want to lose my hair. Mm. And when we start to think about what we consider beauty to be, this was the thing that stopped her from going further with her treatment. Um, oh. And so you start looking at that, losing her my senior year. The monologue I picked to do at Showcase was all about that. We were the first class to go to L.A. I picked a, a monologue from Long Day's Journey in Tonight. Um, mm -hmm. I should have done Rick's monologue from Six Degrees of Separation. That was the one that was killing it. I did it in John Jenkins' class and his technique class and just kicked its butt. And that would have done much better in L.A. But I have learned from this podcast, it wouldn't have mattered because if I had, I didn't have any interviews because they told Leonard, they said, you know, you're a Chinese friend, your redheaded Chinese friend. Um, he, because I, that was part of my bio. I'm the only quarter Chinese redheaded guy I know. Basically. Oh, you literally are Chinese. I, okay. Yeah. okay. My, mom, my mom is half Chinese and I'm quarter. And okay. that was part of my bio. Um, but uh, they, they're like, yeah, he did that very strange monologue. Eugene O'Neill is a strange monologue. Well, to LA, LA. to LA it is, but if I had, ha I didn't have any meetings, didn't want any meetings, to be honest with you, but I went out there and I had no intent. I didn't care that I didn't get any meetings because I got in a car and I drove to Santa Barbara and I drove right up to my, the doorstep of the house that we lived in. And I took my mom's ashes and I put it on the, at the, at the door. I put it outside the house because that I wanted to return her to that place. And that was the reason I went to L.A. I didn't go to L.A. to be famous. I wanted to do 
theater in New York because that's what we were uh, in theater in New York and in Chicago because that's what we were taught at the theater school. We were taught right. to uphold that, and that's what I want. Right. Um, right. And and you know, I said when I lived when I went there, I'm like, I'm never going to move. I live in L.A. It's never going to happen. <laughs> and then in, yeah, then you ended and up. Then in, you yeah, took the job. I took the with job. I worked for Ben Nye for you know three and a half years. This is the thing: never tell the universe never. Because the universe is going to go, <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, so you know, wow. all these different things happened right in the moment. I, I talked to Paul Hunquist about this yesterday, uh, about how, because um, he was in Known to Blame, and he thought I had it all together. And, and I'm like, no, that was it. Kevin Fox and I met at the Taco Bell down the street from Wrigley Field. And I said, I'm, I'm giving it up. And he was like, why? Your career is taking off. I said, because I have to. My dad was pissed. But just this past year, my dad said, I understand now. I understand why you gave it up. Because you wouldn't be here if you had kept doing it. And so you, you really feel like just to reiterate, like you feel like when you splashed the water on your face, that was when you were in four shows and everything. And you thought that you, you just got a sense that like your life would end for destructive ways. Mm -hmm. If you stayed on the path you were on. Correct. Like you were a runaway. I'm getting the image that you felt like you were a runaway train. Yeah. 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 And I I was not, you know, to everybody's outside viewpoint, they were like, why are you leaving? You're leaving right, yeah. right when you're you're getting somewhere. And I'm like, I felt a rhythm and a tempo inside of me that was dying. And I didn't yeah. want mm. to fan the flames. So would, wow. it, would it be fair to say it worked that you made that course correction at that point? Oh, yeah. Okay. I yeah. Mean, like the fact, everything that's happened in my life since, you know. Um, but I started wow. the theater company and everything was going great. And then it really was my first year of grad school because that was the beginning. I maxed out my credit cards. I did this. We got nonprofit status. And then the company was going in a direction that I didn't agree with. And the wolves turned and I walked away. So when you, so the death of your mother happened at the beginning of your final year of school did that it sounds like what you're saying in part is that that had the effect of giving you a kind of perspective that you probably wouldn't have otherwise mm-hmm. had is that fair oh, to yeah. say oh, yeah okay yeah. and what's it like to be processing that at the same time is i mean because you're already processing so much to be in theater school mm-hmm. and, and maybe even especially to be in your final year yeah to that on top of it must have been a lot was a lot but here's the great thing about your podcast Listening to Jimmy McDermott talking about his father's death when he was directing his piece, listening to, um, you know, Bridget Cubido talking about trauma, listening to Rob Hess talking about the trauma burritos. Oh, my God. I, I just like so much that I didn't feel alone anymore. Hmm. Listening to That's what great. Jimmy went through with that and that process and the ways that he felt that he transferred and he displaced aggressions onto the people he was working with. Those elements, but the the reverence that you have for him as a director, you know, it it it, it made me because when, originally I was like thinking, you know, I'm I'm alone in this. I no longer mm-hmm. felt alone. That mm-hmm. was huge, 
huge wow. to not feel alone anymore in this process. Yeah. You know, to me, it's like also listening, Jen, to talk about like you, you lost your mom in 2011 mm-hmm. and then what you discovered in 2015 at that picnic. You know, to me, it's like thinking about the fact that I lost my mom in 1994. And when with her death, I kind of elevated her status and raised her up on a pedestal. My graduation day from DePaul was probably one of the most depressing days of my life. My brother and my father weren't speaking to each other. My stepfather was there. He and my father weren't talking to one another. I, they, I, oh, Tim Donovan was next to me. I'm sobbing. Yeah. I'm absolutely sobbing. I go up on stage. There's a picture of me, you know, the, the, if you want to buy your graduation photos, me, right. walking on the stage, I look like death. Oh, um, and shit. because it was, it was not what it was supposed to be. I had written a letter to the school my junior year saying, it's been a long time since you've done Shakespeare. You need to do it again. Romeo and Juliet needs to be what you're doing. They pick Romeo and Juliet. Christina Dare is directing it. I love the Christina Dare. She and I got along great. And I thought, hey, Romeo, I'm going to prove to my mom that I am yeah. not my father and I'm going to play this part. She passes away. Cast list comes out. I stopped going to the cast list the night of posting my junior year when Into the Woods got posted. Because Into the Wood got posted. I looked at the list. I saw I was in Hunting Cockroaches, directed by Paul Tay. Loved that play. Saw Leonard's name as the wolf in Into the Woods. Was so excited. I'm like, hey, Leonard, you got cast in a main stage show. And he's like, great. The only African-American in the entire casting pool gets cast as an animal. As an animal, yeah. And I mm-hmm. would, he's like, it yeah. would be fine if I was also the prince. But I got right. cast as an animal and my whole perception changed in that moment and and leonard leonard was my dear friend the entire four years amy as well she she and kevin we called each other the pig dogs it's like kevin pig dog and amy pig dog and she would always like push on my nose whenever i got too serious she's like steven calm down Hmm. you need to calm Mm -hmm. down but the cast list goes up for romeo and juliet and I walk up and Leonard walks up at the exact same time. It's the morning after. And I see that I'm listed as Tybalt. And I had keys. Great to- part, by the way. Great, great part. Yeah. But. I'm sorry. I think so. Yeah. And, 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 and it was. And I was certified. I had all these things. It makes sense. I had the key to the makeup room. Leonard's there with me. I walk into the makeup room and I sob. Because. I'm not going to be able to prove to my mom right. that I'm a good actor. I'm playing the right. angry young man. And this is exactly what she said about my acting all along. I had a meeting with Christine and she said, I would have had to have gone with my third choice as Juliet if I cast you as Romeo. And I'm like, what do you mean? She, she says, Karen Mould is taller than you. Karen was my roommate junior year. I you know, loved her, got along with her, but she's like, yeah, and the other thing, Leonard is Romeo. Of course, Leonard is Romeo. I got to yeah. play Romeo years later um, in Chicago, so I got that out of my system. Um, but I see Leonard in class, and he's just sitting in the corner. He's like, ah! and I just went up and gave him a hug, and I was like, I love you. I, I, I you know, I love that. I love him and Amy. I officiated their wedding. Oh, oh, look at that. Beautiful. You guys oh. can't see. He's holding up a beautiful picture oh. of Amy Farrell and Leonard Roberts getting married and Stephen's yeah. officiating. In Santa Barbara, California. 
So, you know, so it's like crazy to go back there again and then to be part of that joy. I have a question. I don't understand how you on stage reminded your mom of your dad. I think I missed something there. Um, Because my dad. uh, Okay. Um, My dad was. uh, When we were in California, my dad did not get tenure. My mom did not want to leave Santa Barbara. Um, she mm-hmm. also had had a relationship with one of my dad's uh, graduate students. Um, and I didn't find this out until two years after her death. And so just like what you find out at the, the pick, you find out this information and you're like, oh my gosh, what I've learned about this woman is completely different than the reality. My dad's response to that was to become very, like we called him flaky Jake. He always had this kind of exuberant energy that just went all over the place. He got involved in acting because it's something that he wanted to do, but he never pursued it. He started acting in shows. I'm nine years old going to see him and getting out. He's playing the pimp and getting out. I'm sitting in the audience and they're like, why is this nine-year-old kid here? You know, um, and, uh, you know, that show, which is not a ghetto show. Just want to point that out, but uh, is, a, is an amazing show, um, I think. Leslie Ivory, I think, was talking about about being in a production of it and whatnot, but it's like absolutely incredible. But to be in that, watching him in that, like he expressed himself, he he let all these feelings out. Uh, when I discovered later on about my mom's situation, that helps to understand why my dad behaved the way that he did. Um, I called my dad up and I'm like, talk to me about this. And my dad was like, you are never supposed to find that out. And then it was not until that moment that, because I never saw my parents love each other. It was that moment that I saw that my dad loved my mom. And so it took all this time, but what that did and the seeking of truth, we read Oedipus, we, we go on journeys of truth. I started on this journey of truth. I wanted to know things. I took my mom's old computer and I started looking through her files big mistake. And I'm reading through her files and there in her journal is Stephen is my cancer. What? Oh and my God. this was at the exact same time that I'm in four shows in Chicago and I'm drinking a lot and I'm doing all this stuff. And I read that and I realize something has to change. Oh my God. So you find out this information and you put the brakes. And I just discovered that everywhere I walked in Chicago, I was having, I was running into pl- things that I couldn't hide from the, the blue right. demons in my closet. Um, and I move out to California and I start something new and I start a new, uh, a new journey and uh, you know, having a kind of a fresh start. And I lived in Chicago and I lived in LA for four years before I went to grad school. So um, you know, <laughs> I have to say something that I hope it's okay to say. Please, please, please. Um, please. Uh, be, uh, we always do the let me run this by you thing right right before we interview our guest. And um, I was going to bring up as my let me run this by you <clears throat> to Boz that I'm tired of my own vanity mm-hmm. and I'm ready to let go of it. You know, I'm ready to figure out how to let go of it. I just keep thinking like your mother's vanity really killed her. And this is where, you know, my, my, my dad later in life got alopecia totalis and lost all the hair on his entire body. 
uh, and he lost all the hair the month that his own father was that age when he died. I'm 48 years old. My mom died at 50. Like I'm of the age that she was struggling with this stuff. And, and, and that's, that's crazy. But like, I've talked to people uh, who have also have alopecia and, and are losing their hair and it's very difficult. But I told, I said, I would shave my head in an instant if it meant allowing someone to feel more confident about their journey or struggles with health. Now, here's the crazy thing. I w- went to work at Northwestern University at the Center for Biotechnology. The, ye- the six months after my mom died, tamoxifen came out on the market. You know, the, the ways in which science does certain things and has certain advancements. And it's like you start to think the what if quality, not in a Marvel sense of what if. Uh, Sean Gunn can talk more about that. But, um, you know, the, in the in in the aspect of what if if she had held on longer, what if that drug could have changed? Mm-hmm. Things? Mm-hmm. But but she didn't lose her hair. But when she was on her deathbed, she weighed 70 pounds. And I oh went home God. over over uh, uh, Labor Day weekend. But I was still holding on hope that she was going to see Romeo and Juliet and that she was going to accept me as. Yeah. Someone. And so, like, it's not the same kind of vanity, but but that was also what you were really contending with. The vanity of needing you know, the people pleasing, the pick me, choose me, love me, the, the need to be seen in a certain yeah. type of way yeah. by your mother was the, what created the runaway train that you mm-hmm. then had to completely yeah. jump away from. So Stephen, um, when you were saying uh, that you're making a, you're healing something now, mm-hmm. thinking that you weren't alone losing a parent going through this really difficult time in early life. I don't know why it strikes me because I spent so much time talking about this exact thing, but somehow the way you are saying it is really, it's really touching me that like we hold on to these very active hurts Mm -hmm. like that you could still feel alone now from 25 years ago like i i don't that's so weird that the brain does that (laughs) well i mean i mean bridget talked about trauma in the body she talked about that in her feldenkrais work and everything and when i was out in california when i got fired from that job in november on november 1st and i applied to grad school the job that i went to next was to be the executive director of a massage therapy school and i became a massage therapist and during deep tissue work as part of our training I was getting deep tissue work on the chest in the intercostals and between the ribs and everything. And I lost it on the table because that's where my mom resides is right in the center of my chest. So you release that tension from the body. What that releasing did is it opened me up to the possibilities that came immediately following it. It opened me up to the love that I have with my wife. It opened me up to the possibility of grad school. It opened me up by releasing and letting that go, um, I was able to feel this huge weight come off my shoulders by allowing it to really devastate me on the table as I was working with my with my classmates through the the training. Um, 
And, and that's a good thing. I have always had a powerful emotional response to things that I do. And oftentimes that powerful emotional response pushes people away. And I regret that fact that happened in under, it happened during my training at theater school. Uh, and, and I don't like the fact that that is truth, but the reality is, is when I feel something, I feel it deeply. I feel it. I, you know, we, we are taught to open the channel through the link ladder training that we got. And I opened the channel and it, it, it just kept flowing. And, and how does it drive people away? You're saying like, Oh, it's too much. It's too intense. People can't take it. Yeah. Uh Uh, And I'll just use a theater school as example. First year, our our voice teacher was Peter Wittrock. He came from uh, uh, Shakespeare and Company, um, was very close to Christina Dare, and he was great. And I was uh, working on things. Jen Cover talked about a a student in her class, John Lanius, who was who was who had had a a breakdown while she was gone. Uh, And it was great for her to hear uh that and, and what that relationship is now. Well, John was my dear friend. And John, John had a breakdown in his first quarter at school and third quarter, we were sitting in the classroom and Peter was like, who wants to work? And no one raised their hand. And I said, screw it. I'll work. And I started doing Queen Mab from Romeo and Juliet because I played Mercutio and Peter stopped me and was like, nope, you're not working on that. You're going to work on the speech that you've been working on with me, which is the bastard speech from King Lear. The most overdone. Love that. I know, but I love it. Yeah. But I love it. And I had a huge emotional uproar happen. He had me pounding on the mats. Everybody in the class went like, like to the backs of the walls. And I finished it and I got leveled by my classmates. And I'm like, they were like, we knew that you always had this in you. And they connected it back to John. And I'm like, I'm my own person. John, that happened in another section. It didn't even happen in our section. But I'm my own person. And I'm feeling something. And what happened my junior and senior, and junior, uh, actually sophomore and junior year, I didn't care anymore. If I had an emotional response, I was just going to let it out. We had to pick our first monologue from uh, for uh, Christine said, pick a new uh, pick a new Shakespeare monologue. I'm reading Othello to read uh, to find a, an Iago monologue. And I come to Othello's Behold, I have a weapon. His speech after he's killed Gus Desdemona. And I'm like, I have to do this. And I lose it in class. And everybody just stays away. And then Rick from Six Degrees. I had just come from a movement to music class. I had the rainbow shorts underneath my pants. And at the end of the speech, thinking about the given circumstances of that speech, Rick, in the next thing we hear about him is that he's jumped out of a window and he's killed himself. So I'm in the classroom on the top level of the building and I just strip all my clothes off except for my rainbow shorts and my leggings. And I go to the window and I throw open the window and I lean out the window and I say the last line out the window and I close the window. And everyone is like, backed off. And when I, when Jane Alderman's class came and and we were picking which monologue to do, and I didn't do that one as the first one. I did the the one from uh, uh, Long Day's Journey and Tonight. My classmates were like, yeah, do that one. Do that one. <laughs> Cause, and I was at that point trying to please them because I felt so lost having lost my mother. 
But the Rick monologue would have done me so much better. But it wouldn't have mattered because <laughs> I wasn't going out to L.A. anyways. Right. But do you I'm guessing that you see it now. The reaction of your classmates is it's too real. It's too honest. It may you doing this makes me feel like I have to do something about myself. Right. Yeah, totally. Totally. And here's the thing about it. I'm a director now. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm I, I do still act in things. I'm uh, I'm in our production of Christmas Carol. I'm the adult Tiny Tim, who's the narrator talking through things. So I still okay. act, but it's not my pursuit. I, and right. I try to navigate these issues, um, and mm-hmm. and it's difficult. But uh, you know that. So how that do you? Uh, you're directing at the school. Yeah, at, I directed. Yeah, in the 13 years I've been here, I've done 25 productions um, in the 13 years. And then teach my acting classes in theater. And I've taught 22 different classes at the college level while I've been here. From a WWE class with the business professor to an actist to all these things. I mean, I've I've been all over the map. And this is Jen Ellison talking about teaching an ethics class. Like the Uh fact of the matter is, is we adapt. Everybody adapts. And so theater we're taught to adapt and we can educate ourselves so you know like people like we want you to teach this class i'm like okay okay i can do it (laughs) so so being so when it must be such an interesting experience to be with your students and have recollections and real probably visceral even responses to like okay i know exactly the thing that you're going through you may even have people that you identify as being similar to you you know younger versions of yourself and the tricky part there. I mean, you, that, that's such a wonderful gift, but it's something to be navigated so carefully because the tricky part is when you overly identify, right. Right. With, with the person. And then you, you like, you don't have enough perspective enough to help them. But do you, do you think about that a lot? The, yeah. John Jenkins, the aesthetic distance. How's your old man? You know, like, like when do we have the aesthetic distance? There have been challenges that I've had. I mean, there are adolescents growing up. They, they're told they're adults, but they haven't taken responsibility for their own lives. So they're not adults. And, and you have this major challenge that these students have. Um, and I've, I've gotten calls at home. I've taken students to the wellness center. I've mm-hmm. done things to t- try to protect them and, and gone out of my way to do so and seen them through difficult times because the fact is, is that a lot of us are not talking about the conflicts that we have. We're not discussing it. And it, I might wa- awaken something in them and I have to be ready to catch them. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that's that, that we awaken this spirit and we have to be able to realize that the, you might need a safety net. And Oh yeah. You can't just bring it up and then be, and say later. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And, and I, and there've been, there've been times that I've succeeded and there've been times that I've failed. Blake Hackler mm-hmm. talked about that beautifully in his interview with you guys about the ways that, you know, you, you, you succeed and you fail in this profession, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You, but you do the best you can. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. 
This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you. Thank you.